Welcome to this episode of On The Move, a podcast about missions, international ministry, and how God is transforming lives around the world. I'm your host, Leanne White, and this week I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Bibiana McLeod. She is the Technical Advisor for Disaster Response and Anti-Human Trafficking and Special Projects. She's with Medical Ambassadors International. So welcome, Bibiana. Thank you. Thank you, Leanne. Happy to be here. Bibiana, you and I met in 2016 in the country of Haiti. When we met there, you weren't living in Haiti full-time any, anymore, but you had. And you uh, moved to Haiti in 1989 to begin working there. Uh, so can you talk to us a little bit about what went into your calling to serve God in Haiti? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I'm a medical doctor from Argentina. I was trained in Argentina. And as part of my training, I did my residence in um medical, internal medicine would be. And I was doing my last three months uh, of elective in Brazil, and I felt the call to go full-time into missions. That was 1986. So somebody that was working in Haiti was in contact with my pastor in Argentina, and they mentioned the need of doctors there. So I had gone for a month in 1988 to visit and check it out. And then God really impacted my life saying, this is the place. And I went back in 1989 for a commitment of one year. But during that year, I could see that this was the place. So I got more involved in medical work in different rural clinics. So that's how I started. How long were you in Haiti full time? 15 years. 15 years. So what happened during during that time? How did your ministry and your role change? Well, I, I, we were talking before that this is more like a journey, and I can see different stages of my journey that has not ended yet. And during those first three, four years, I was learning the language, I was practicing medicine, but there was something inside of me saying, okay, there's something else that I'm not catching what what is it that God really wants me to do here because I was seeing patients and then uh, later on I moved to a countryside where I had a remote clinic primary health care and I was every day every day we were preaching the gospel in the waiting area people were coming to Christ but I knew that there was more and I was also seeing patients that will come with the same diseases over and over and I said but there is something that needs to be done that will prevent these people from keep coming with the same diseases. So in 1994, 93 actually, uh, four years into my missionary work in Haiti, I was asked to translate for another group from Spanish into Haitian Creole, a training on community health evangelism. And the moment I started to translate, I knew exactly this is it. This is what I am supposed to be doing. That is more moving into the community and working with the people from within the community to solve their issues that are preventing diseases, not just curing diseases. So I moved from curative to preventive and community development. So that was a huge step that was a process of years of continue to work in the clinic and make the clinic self-sufficient, have nurses that uh, also saw patients and I will see patients once a week. But most of my time was training people 
and training trainers to go into the communities. I love you talking about the fact that you see your role, you see what you've done for the Lord as, as really a journey, that your your time as a missionary even really is has been a journey and just the desire that you have to be where God wants you to be. So you came back to Canada. You, When we met in 2016, you were going back to Haiti on a fairly regular basis and staying in touch with the folks there. When you came back to Canada, how, like, what new challenges, what new opportunities did the Lord bring to you during that move and that transition? Well, first of all, let me tell you <laughs> that I came to Canada for one year. <laughs> that was the deal. <laughs> I never expected to stay 14 years and counting. What had happened is that in 2008, uh, we came in 2007, and the idea was to go back to the mission field in 2008. And when I say mission field was back then the Dominican Republic. But a series of things happened. One that was big was the financial crash in the U.S. and in Canada and the loss of support for all the people that we were working with in Cuba, Dominican Republic, and Haiti. And then by then, I was also working in South America in other countries. So uh, the team was larger. The people that we were helping to support was more than uh, just us. And we realized that we needed to to raise our support bases here in Canada too. So, okay, we will do one more year <laughs> and then one more year. And then the, the boys that uh, our boys were teenagers and it was also a family decision that it was time to settle in one place and provide for them what they needed for the careers that they were choosing already then. And I was the one traveling back and forth. So when you met me, I was, the challenge was that I was still doing mission work overseas. My father, my husband was staying with the children and doing uh, all the housework and all the caring of the children. And I had to adapt to the North American culture. On top of it, it, it was really challenging because I was not prepared for that change. And um it, it was a lot of things going on at the same time, but I could see that journey too and how it helped me to understand the world in a different view and function in different cultures simultaneously, which is amazing that uh, you can be for one month in Nicaragua or for three weeks in Haiti and then come back here and function here and send your kids to school and have a totally different diet and it's a totally different timeline, totally different weather <laughs> and still function and, and see that God is here as much and as well as he's over there and he's working and he's producing fruit and fruit that remains everywhere you go. That's so great. So let's shift a little bit and talk about, about what you're doing currently for MAI, some of the, some of the projects that you're involved in and what you see happening, uh, what you see God doing, I guess, specifically, um, and some of the projects that you're working with medical ambassadors on. Yeah. Many years ago, I heard a pastor say in Argentina, a good missionary makes his way out as soon as he arrives. <laughs> and uh, the idea is that you 
cannot hold on to ministry as if it belongs to you, number one. And number two, you're always thinking, who will continue once I am gone? And it really helped to hear him uh, say this because I realized that the moment I was in Haiti training trainers and giving them more and more responsibility meant that I was finding my way out of Haiti. Though I love Haiti, and you know that, that I go back to Haiti every opportunity that I have just to visit family because they are my family. However, I delegated the work to the nationals. And okay, by then I was working in the Caribbean, but then 2017, 2018, there were leaders in the Caribbean and South America that could take over too. And this is the natural history of discipleship. You have to train people to take over. Uh, and in a way, another missionary said, well, Viviana, we have to uh, reinvent ourselves. But I feel that it's not you reinventing yourself. It's God saying, okay, now there is this other thing that you need to look at. At the same time, I, okay, I had gone through the earthquake uh, in Haiti and all the emotional um, burden that is to see people in a situation of crisis and big amount of people in crisis. And I had attended a uh, conference on uh, disasters in at Wheaton College, and I decided to take a master's in, um, it's a master's of arts, but with the Humanitarian Disaster Institute in at Wheaton College. And there I learned a lot. And there were things that resonated with me is how do you do development when there is a disaster? We are having more and more disasters all the time. Are we responding well? Are we helping well? How do we integrate that to our development program that Medical Ambassadors does? So as I was learning, I was given more responsibilities over disaster response and then with anti-human trafficking, which is it was part of the studies, but I also was invited by the World Evangelical Alliance to co-found a network in Latin America of Christian organizations fighting against human trafficking. And that was in the middle of the pandemic, 2020. That took a life on itself. I, I've learned a lot. I did also a diploma on anti-human trafficking with an organization in Mexico and we started to know more about the problem and more about the response, the immense re response that the Christian church is giving right now to the problem of human trafficking. I met a lot of wonderful people that are having shelters, that are doing prevention, that they have uh, training for churches in how to receive people that have been survivors of human trafficking. And all in all, I'm learning a lot. And I'm also renewing my commitment with God. Okay, if this is what you want me to do, I'll learn and I'll do it. And he sends always people to help or people to join the team. So I'm not doing this alone. And um, it's fascinating to see that, yes, the problems are big, like disasters, but the response of the church is there. And you see Christians really... Um, professionalizing in these subjects, like you see Christian organizations specializing in disaster response and you see how well they are doing it and well managed and um, well use of resources, really, and working together. That's another thing that is happening that we cannot overlook is that the Christian organizations that used to have, when I was first a missionary in Haiti, okay, everybody was doing their own thing and you didn't mingle with others. 
that changed through these last 20, 30 years. And you see more and more Christian organizations saying, we cannot do it alone. We need each other and we need to share resources and ideas and experiences. In the emergence of multiple Christian networks and, and joining those networks and you learn so much and you become friends with people in Africa and in Asia that are doing the same work you are doing. And then you realize this is kingdom work. This is, I'm not alone. I can learn from others and God is working in other people's lives and I get to know them right here now. So talk to us a little bit more about the work that you're doing with medical ambassadors for the disaster response. Yeah, interesting enough, medical ambassadors for many years said, we don't work in immediate response. We do development, we don't do relief. But as disasters became more and more frequent, and even among the people that we were already working, like the disaster, the earthquake that I was mentioning in Haiti, we cannot say, no, I don't respond. <laughs> That's not even spiritual or, or Christ-like. But how do we do it well? How do we combine what we say that people need to grow and not, don't give them a fish, teach them to, to fish? But uh, on the other side, you cannot teach somebody to swim when they are flooded. You have to wait. And what do you do meanwhile? So um, that, that is why I studied uh, disaster response. And, and one thing that I discovered is that people that are right now working on um, professionalizing on the field, they see the need of the participation of the people that have suffered the disaster or the crisis and how do you work with them and the mental health. That's another issue that really interested me. There is a lot of training on psychological first aid. How, how do you train the church to do psychological first aid? How can the church become present in a moment of a crisis and a disaster with the right tools and be there for the people? But, um, it's not that prayer is not necessary. Of course, prayer is necessary and evangelization is necessary. However, you cannot benefit from the suffering of others and say, okay, now is a good time to share Christ. And that person right now needs shelter or needs to be heard. So sometimes we have misused the tools that we have or thought that any time is a good time to talk about Christ without listening to the suffering of people. So we need a lot of training on that, right? So in, in disaster response, I learned how to train others. During the pandemic, we did a lot of Zoom trainings on psychological first aid. Then we learned to do something called the Healing the Wounds of Trauma. That is the Trauma Healing Institute uh, organized sessions about the biblical understanding of suffering, but the talking about the wounds of the past. And that is also a set of tools that is really good for people suffering. And of course, this is kind of filling your bag with more and more tools that I didn't have before that we could train in communities to be prepared for disasters. And then came the war in Ukraine. And um, we helped in other um situations like in uh, Goma with the volcano and with the pandemic in India and in Bolivia. When the war happened in Ukraine and uh, we thought, okay, it's not that we have friends in Ukraine. We don't have any 
community health evangelism program. So maybe we shouldn't be looking for who to help. And then we came across a denomination in Slovakia that was receiving refugees crossing the border from Ukraine into Slovakia. And one of our workers is from there. And we started to help them with a vehicle to go across the border and provide help and also bring people in. And then uh, more lately, a church in Ukraine that is receiving what we call IDPs, internally displaced people. And this church needs help because it's just a local church that is receiving hundreds of people that are moving from the front lines into more remote areas of Ukraine. So medical ambassadors got involved with helping the church in Slovakia to facilitate aid to, to these churches. And more recently in Turkey, with after the earthquake, there are um, organizations helping with refugee camps and they are asking, can you help us? Because we are overwhelmed with the day-to-day medical care, but we want to do development. We want these people to start to control their lives again. How do we do it? So we come with the tools to to help in those situations. So there is a variety of things that you could be doing in response to disasters that um, you have a developmental mindset, then you help people for them to raise to the occasion and to strengthen them and empower them to solve their own issues. So that's how we work with development and disaster response. and. Um, there are always new opportunities and we have to learn how to do it again every time it's in a different country with a different situation, like the, the COVID response in Bolivia that was also new to us. How do we help them have the medicines that they need and then move into development? So talk to us a little bit more about development. We You touched on the fact that, that you were seeing that you got into that approach in Haiti, when you were seeing people come with the same issues again and again. And I just want to go back to that for just a little bit and talk about a little bit more about the philosophy behind a development mindset and some of the things that are important to have in place. Well, I mentioned that when I was practicing medicine in Haiti, I got frustrated seeing diseases and children coming again and again uh, because the conditions in the household were not improving. So the fact that you treat a malnutrition or a diarrhea to have it again next month or in two months, that means that you are not being effective with your treatment or you are not doing a complete uh, assessment of the situation to know how do you really solve this problem. Number one, you are the outsider and this is one of our problems, our complex of solving people's problems instead of giving people the opportunity to solve their own problems. So development means that I am not the savior and I am not the one that will solve your problem, but we can work to together until you have the conditions for you to analyze the problem and with your local resources, you will prevent the problem for it not to happen again. So with malnutrition, which is a very common thing, the church does a feeding center. So it never solves the basic problem of the parents not having a job and not understanding the variety of foods that the child can eat. 
So what we did is we invite the parents to see what are the essential foods that the child needs and start gardening and start microenterprise and start working on solving the issue of poverty, on stimulating the child, the growth of a child that is more than food, is emotional care, is spiritual care, is good drinking water, is sanitation. So that's how we work on development instead of assistance or relief, so not to create dependency. One of the things that I just heard you say is that sometimes with development, one of the reasons why development is important is because when we enter into a situation, we want to be the savior. We want to come with the solution. And I think that's just maybe a natural human response that we want to have the answers. Can you talk just a little bit about, just for you personally, maybe, how you have approached having the development mindset versus the I'm the person with the solutions and how maybe that in all of our relationships, we could approach our relationships with that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my first conflict was that I was trained in medical care and you are trained to solve people's problems. So how do you do when for years you have been doing it and then you are saying, do I have to let it go? Do I have to let somebody else take over? And so what is my role? The role of a facilitator is very, is against nature, I will say, <laughs> because you may know the answer, but you have to keep it to yourself. And that's terrible for, especially for women. <laughs> <laughs> So I will say that, okay, first of all, is how do you get rid of all the old ways of thinking? And again, in our Christian walk, we are taught how to mm. let go because you mm. want God to take over, right? And you are always saying, God, take my life. You take the decisions, not me. But now when we are with people, we want to take the decisions for them. And, and I feel that that shift happens over time and with training it doesn't happen uh suddenly and and it's good to be discipled into it and i think that i have good coaching uh, and okay if they ask you a question turn back the question to the group what do you think if um somebody says i don't understand you can ask somebody else in the group uh can anybody explain what this other person doesn't understand? Because the the way of thinking is the answers are in the group. They are just having to discover it, this self-discovery, and you facilitate that process. Don't you ever give new information? Of course you do. But you don't tell people what to do. And and that is hard for for all of us <laughs> mothers. <laughs> so I would say that uh, that shift happens with the conviction that you that God wants you to do that first, that this is a way of life. This is not a ministry. This is how we have to start thinking and living every day. So that responds to your question. Okay, 
how does it become a lifestyle, not just what I do when I am in a community. This has to happen with my children and in my church. And uh, the other day, <laughs> it was my turn to to deliver the message at my local church, and we divided them in groups in the middle of a Sunday service. And of course, people get totally uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and we had three stories about reconciliation, and that was it. I said, okay, what do you think the elements in these stories help us think of what has to happen in order for two people to reconcile? And they came with beautiful ideas that had never occurred to me. And then we came together and we shared them and we said, yeah, this is it. So in the group, there is so much more wisdom than just in one person that studied it from a Bible commentary. And then you can contribute with what you've learned, but you are one more. And this is what I want for the church too, that the church will see itself in the neighborhood as a member, a neighbor. Not just, okay, we have the truth, you don't have it, so here we come with the truth, you have to receive it and believe. Uh, that is a sense of superiority that I don't think that blesses relationships. That's such a convicting thought to just approach all of our relationships from an aspect of humility and mm. and to see what we can learn from others and how others can contribute to our lives and not not to always come at it with what I'm going to do for you right that it's realizing that mm-hmm. it's that it's a two-way street that it's a it's a back and forth uh relationship so that's really yeah and when when you're working in alleviating poverty you have that struggle of uh, I'm not here because I have and you don't have that's not the reason I'm here you have a lot of things that I do not have, and we are walking together this path. And I think that uh, regretfully in the past, we addressed poverty as the haves and the, the don't haves. And uh, so how do we relate to each other? One is a powerful uh, message. It's a, it's a difference of power. I have the power, you don't have the power. So I have to help you get out of poverty. And and we know that's not the answer. That's not how you work. You just come together, you walk together, you learn together, and you help each other to grow. Yes, help each other to grow. That's, I think, really, maybe when it comes right down to it, right? That the true calling of believers to live in community with each other and to look for opportunities to help each other grow um, from a humble sort of standpoint. Which is one of the things that I love about about that whole approach that community health evangelism takes is that it is the community coming together to do what what one person couldn't do alone, and I think that's maybe countercultural, yeah. right? For for what mm-hmm. certainly North American culture, um, where we're fairly independent, and that's sort of a value that we have to realize that there's there's a value in interdependence, which is a biblical concept, right? To be interdependent one with each yes. other. What other things are you doing for MAI right now that you're really excited about or that, that you're um, feeling challenged by or stretched by? Well, when I started to work in South America with um, Aboriginal people, I knew that the material that we had required that our trainers will know how to read and write. And then I learned that 80% of 
the planet, even when they know how to read and write, they are oral learners. And I remember around that time I met you, we talked about it because even with grown-ups, you have to change the way you pass on messages and talk about things, remembering that oral learners use all their senses, they use proverbs, they use songs, and there are a variety of things that you can do for people to keep the message. So I started a new uh, path that is, okay, how do I adapt what I have so people from oral cultures will learn through a different methodology? And that's why we we have all these different um ways of teaching a lesson. And then along comes Orfa, who is a girl from Bolivia. She's a Guarani, and God called her to be a missionary among the Guarani in Argentina. And we have been working together and modifying the lessons and then went to Colombia to work with the YU people, that is another Aboriginal group, and then went back to Bolivia to Orfa's original group. And different groups of oral learners are at different stages of their spiritual growth. And that's the amazing thing. Because you go to Bolivia, where they are third-generation believers, and it's interesting how they absorbed new knowledge and talk about things. When you go to the Guarani in Argentina, there is pioneering work, and there are very few believers. Most of them are animistic. And the amount of time that it takes to talk about one lesson, and I will give you just a little story. We started, uh, when we do uh, Bible teaching, we do what we call it uh, storytelling. And it's like a chronological presentation of the story of God. So you start with the story of creation. Now, these people have never heard the story of creation before. So we had this group of new as seekers, I wouldn't say they had not engaged as believers, but they were really open spiritually. And they learned the story of creation and they were amazed. And they said, we have to go tell our people this. And people started to share just the story of creation. And it took them one year to translate it into their local language and go from village to village to tell the story of creation. One old, old man said, this is amazing that the God of the universe created everything I see. And he became a believer on this God, not having absolutely anything else that he could grasp onto the work of Jesus and the cross. He just believed in this God. And to this day, this is one of our first believers that he's still on the path and I, I imagine uh, you being a traditional believer <laughs> from many, many years and seeing these people with one story, passing this on from village to village, and this is all they have. They are so happy that they have a relationship with this God creator. And again, uh, it taught me a lot about, okay, what do I do with each story? So we memorize verse by verse, we pass it on, they learn it verse by verse, and that's how they give it to other people. So the next year we went with four more stories and uh, we ended up with the uh, story of Abraham. 
And this was like four years ago. And we have not added any more stories. This is how slow they are in taking it in, translating it, and passing it all along. But in the process, finally, they accepted Orpha in their village, which took all these years because they are very close and they don't want other influences from other beliefs or cities or white people. So progress is very, very little, but we are excited and we are excited to see new believers in this ethnic group. So, and there is another group in the same mission translating the Bible into their local language. So there is a lot of progress there too. That's really exciting. Yeah. So some last thoughts from you, something that that in the time that I've known you, and you even talked about it earlier today before we started the recording, that I think you put it this way, that you have a deep desire to be where God wants you to be. It's something that I observed in you uh, when I first met you and what I've seen in you over and over again in the chances that we've had to see each other um, and be in communication since we met. And so I really, I'm personally encouraged by that. I'm personally encouraged by your heart to be where, uh, where God wants you to be. And I just would love for you to talk a little bit about how the people listening today can pursue being where God wants them to be. Nobody's path looks like somebody else's, number one. I believe that God puts desires in your heart. Uh, I feel very powerful currents inside of me when there is this desire of being somewhere. And I said, God, is this you or this is my flesh? Is this my desire because I'm a medical doctor and I want to be doing this because it has to do with my training or because I want to learn more or because it's fun to travel? Uh, Can you please check? What is the motivation in my heart? So I feel that you have to constantly be checking, making sure that you are not following just a personal desire, but I feel that there is something inside of you that also leads you because God puts it there. And then there is a confirmation. My husband is a good um, counselor in that sense. I share with him, okay, I have this idea, what do you think? My pastor, I work under authority, and and I feel that's a huge element in anybody's work for the kingdom. Who is your spiritual authority? Have you talked to others about it? What do they think? Do they align with what you want to do, or you are going against everybody's idea of what needs to be done? Then the request of others. Um, I usually listen to those in the field that say, please, can you come, and this is what needs to be done. Uh, sometimes it's possible, sometimes it's not possible, but everything has to kind of come together and then you see, okay, yes, every piece is in place. One big thing was to go to Haiti last August. I uh, The last time I had been in Haiti was in May of 2022 and it was really risky. I had gone with my husband, Alexander. We spent a few weeks there traveling, but we knew that it was at, at risk. And after that, I couldn't go back because it was really getting worse. And people were kidnapped and they shot one of our friends and a lot of things had happened. So I kept asking, Lord, when? When can I go? 
when is it safe? No, it's not safe now. It's not safe now. So a year and a half passed and uh, then a cholera outbreak happened in May. And I was really, really burdened because I was trying to teach through Zoom how to chlorinate water. And uh, I sent instructions and I sent the strips to measure the water. But I felt in my heart, there are things that you need to be there to explain. And um, I started to pray. And then the dates combined with something else that needed to be done in the Dominican. And I consulted and I asked and I got the okay. And I went and everything was safe and I could do what I thought that needed to be done and last week they closed the border because the situation is worse again and there was that window of opportunity to go and do it and I was able to do it and I'm very thankful for that so there is a price to pay there is always risk in what you do because the enemy is not happy with what you are doing uh, however I feel that you have to do it under authority and I will put that uh, underlined that um, if everybody is against what you are saying that God is telling you to do, just continue to pray until God opens the door. Thank you so much, Bibiana. Just thank you for sharing your heart with us about what God has done and uh, what He's doing, especially through some of the disaster response stuff. That's really exciting, and and then also just just being sensitive to following God's direction. Uh, in your life. I really uh, appreciate the encouragement that that's been for me today. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of On The Move by 21C International. 21C International is a Christian nonprofit organization on a mission to encourage, equip, and empower Christian pastors in the global South by providing free, informal, biblical, and pastoral training. You can visit 21C International to learn more and be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform to hear more about missions, international ministry, and how God is changing lives around the world.